Well, it's um, so good to be together and so good to, um, to hear your voices declare the wonderful truth that we celebrate today, that Christ is risen. It was interesting, Rosie's uh, beginning moment, uh, Christ is risen and your response, he is risen indeed. You know, I was, uh, when I was converted, uh, it was a little bit later than many people um, among us, but uh, I was converted a little bit later. I went to a small church in Sydney, a, um, a, a kind of backstreet Sydney, a, a kind of lovely godly people, older people, and, um, and we would do this, he is risen, and uh, this is how it would go, the, the leader would say, he is risen, and they would say, he is risen indeed, and you would feel a little depressed at that moment, <laughs> but you know, um, you've got to be careful, don't you, because uh, you know that Aussie, Aussie, Aussie chant, Aussie, 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 yeah, see, see, if we did it at that church, Aussie, 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 they would have gone, oi, oi, oi. There's just a, there's a culture, don't you think? There's just, people are different. And, uh, but that declaration of, he is risen indeed. I mean, where cultures are different, I didn't even say anything because I'm embarrassed to say anything out loud. I hate being up the front. But anyway, I know what you're all like too. Some of you are extroverts, some of you get it. But when you do, he is risen indeed. We are meant to be saying something celebratory, astonishing, full of joy, amazing, there's a sense of victory that he has risen, which is an astonishing truth, isn't it? The Lord, what a thing. It has changed everything. It's changed life. You know, there are moments that you probably remember where um, a sort of a happenstance happened, you know, one of those things that you, out of your, you just, just happened and it changed your whole life. Have you had those experiences? Most of you have because you're married, that was one of them. Uh, (laughs) You know, I remember that moment, Kathy was, uh, my wife was um, not meant to be at this uh, conference, it was a big conference, hundreds of young adults and so on, but she was brought by a bloke who was interested in her. But as soon as I walked in the room... Her eyes saw me in the distance and it was over for her. She was just, uh, her life was changed. Now, you need to work out whether it was for the better or the worse. But um, I managed to uh, get her phone number and, and, and that, yeah, it changed everything about us. So many things, just that moment, happenstance. Um, do you know there's a sense in which that's something of what we're talking about here? But, but it's not really. The moment when the Lord Jesus rose from the grave. It changed human history. It changed the fact of human death. It smashed death so that there's now a path through death. It changed our world, the planet, the universe, creation forever. It is like nothing else that's happened in human history. Now, some of the changes that came because of the Lord Jesus' death are obvious because because the resurrection isn't a resuscitation. Just to make sure we know what we're talking about this morning, the resurrection isn't a resuscitation. Uh, It isn't that a a sick person um, uh, was really filling off colour and made a whole lot better, which is a message about when things are tough for you, there's always a future. That's not the message of the resurrection. It it wasn't that an unconscious person was woken up uh, and and just got on about living their life and then died again. It wasn't that. It, It was a resurrection 
It wasn't even a person who was momentarily dead, you know, that 30 seconds without a heartbeat, uh, a minute without a heartbeat. It wasn't that experience where they're resuscitated, brought back to life again, to die again. It wasn't that. It was a dead person, a, a body-broken person, a person who had lost all their blood person, a body and soul separated person, a person in the grave for three days with a gaping wound in their side, which has bled all of their life force out, dead for three days, beginning to rot. That dead person was made alive again. And not just alive to die again, but alive again, body, flesh, bone, into a new existence, to never die. The implications of that, the change that that brings, is mind-boggling, if it's true, if it's true. And it does beg that question, and I hope, if you're here amongst us and you're not normally in church, with, I, I hope you're asking that, I don't doubt you are. Is it true? Did it really happen? I I wish we had time to spend on it. We don't this morning, but I just want to give you some lines of thought to pursue. The evidences are many, uh, and we run a series here. You can actually see it in that uh, handout you were given um, called Explaining Christianity on the inside there, which starts Tuesday the 16th of May. Um, The the evidences are many, the thoughts and streams. Um, The the fact that the tomb was empty, there was no body to be found, that's just a fact of history. Uh, But the... the, the, um, Stories that were circulated to make sense of that fact, but part of history. Um, the, the, the fact that the witnesses, the first witnesses were women, which, you know, you kind of go, well, that sounds offensive. But no, in the first century, the fact that this story, this event was declared beginning by women is itself... And if you were making up a story, you wouldn't have done that back in the first century. It's evidence that the truth of it was so profound, they just told it like it was. That the... the, the Beginning of the early church. Where did that? Why did that happen? Why, in the context of Jerusalem, did this occur? This beginning, where they could have gone to the tomb and found the body, they didn't because it wasn't there. The facts are the conversion of the apostle Paul, a man so hostile. The lives of the first witnesses. You go through all of these. The extra biblical evidence around the place. There's just so many lines of evidence to pursue here. It happened, and that it did changes everything. Now, some of those changes are obvious. I want to talk to you about a a least obvious one this morning, but many of the changes are obvious, and I want to make sure we get them clear. You know, if a a dead man, truly dead, comes through death to the other side and rises again, never to die again with a new body, a new shape, and a new... What does that tell you? It tells you absolutely that this life's not it. To live for this life is foolishness in the extreme. There is, there is an existence beyond the grave. That's what it tells you. If it happened, this life is not it. It tells you something about the Lord Jesus too. He as the one who has broken the bounds of death. What does that tell you about him and the power? To, 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 what is it about the power of God to enable death to be undone such that soul and body are joined back again? Such that a dead person can be raised out of death into life. The astonishing power of the Lord Jesus, the connection he has with his Father, the uniqueness that he has amongst all religious leaders. He, he is not, as I've said often, he is not just one religious leader amongst many, he is the only one if he was raised from the grave. No other religious leader has claimed such a thing. 
He is unique. He is the key, therefore, to the future. These are the implications that flow from this. He is raised and ruling. You know, if you do uh, have questions about Christianity, as I did as a young man, um, this is the place to start. This is where I started. I I thought if I can work out whether this happened, everything else follows. So I went straight here and I'd urge you to do the same. Come along to explaining Christianity. Come along at any Sunday uh, to explore these things, to consider. Look at the Bible evidences yourself. It changes everything, but there are some changes that aren't as immediately obvious as others. To us, in our context, and I want to suggest you a change that this part of the Bible actually draws our attention to that's, that's not intuitive and it's somewhat unique and surprising. And I want to take us there particularly this morning. And I, I want to, where I want to take us to is to see that the, the change the resurrection makes for us is that it frees you from fear. It frees you from, about the, from the fear of life, in life, the fear of death, the fear about the future. And it gives you a kind of security that you cannot find anywhere else. And that's what I want to take us to this morning. If you've got that uh, little bit of um, uh, that outline there, you'll see it recorded for us. Matthew, uh, Romans chapter 8 is the text. Um, and let me, let me show you, this is a passage that does talk about the resurrection. I've got a series of slides here that, too that will help you. See, in the middle of that text, I've just highlighted, it does talk about the resurrection. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life. Here is a part of the Bible again, referencing the resurrection. Was raised to life again by the powerful God of the universe. Now, the tone of this whole passage uh, is celebratory. There's a, sense of, there's a sense of victory and joy and confident hope for the future. That's the kind of tone of it. But it is in the context of that which we ought to be most afraid of and concerned about. I want you to notice, look at the next slide. I want you to notice some of the language in this, te- in this text. So the word justify and the word condemns. Now they're important words. Uh, in the context of this message that this uh, follower of the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, wrote, they're words that come out of a legal context uh, to be justified and to be condemned, out of the courtroom scene. Uh, That's the context which he sets up some chapters earlier uh, in this message that he gives. It's a context of a courtroom, the heavenly courtroom, actually, but the great courtroom, they're legal terms. To be condemned, of course, is that a judge declares a person guilty and condemned and now sent off for judgment. Condemned. It's a terrible word to hear. The word justified, uh, the word justified, if you wouldn't mind yet throwing it back up, the word justified is again a legal term. It's the declaration of a judge in a courtroom where he says, she says, you can go free. You're justified. Before the courts, before the law, you have no case to answer for. This cannot be brought against you again. You are free to go justified. Oh, the relief in the courtroom scene. Now, the concern here with the use of these couple of words, is the verdict of the eternal courtroom, the great judge, God. And you'll see at the beginning of the text, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, if God does not condemn, 
but justifies, if he declares you just without a case to answer for, you are free to go. The whole context here is the eternal court, the judgment at the end, which is an event I want to suggest we are determined to avoid ever thinking about. It's an event, though, that the Bible keeps driving at and driving at and pushing us to see that we will all die. We will all die. I was visiting in hospital yesterday with 90-year-olds who who are declining rapidly. And that is my future, it's your future. We will all die. And we will stand one day in that heavenly courtroom. Do you know, have you ever been to court? I know some of you have, not just as a visitor. (laughs) Have you ever been to court and been in the context of in the hands of a judge who will declare you condemned or justified. The nerves, the anxiety. Or have you ever just been in a context where you've been aware that you might be found out? Or Nelly found out? Or found out? A judgment against you that there might be one is the worst kind of feeling. Now, most of you get a sense of that if you've not been to a courtroom. Most of you get a sense of that when you're driving. I watch you drive. Do you know, you're doing that one you're late night, you're trying to get up the north coast and you're doing 120k in a 110 zone or an 80 zone and, and there's behind you as you're racing at night, sure that you're safe and all, you know, I'm, you know, of all the drivers in the world, I'm the one who can cope with this, that's what you say to yourself and then behind you, what happens? The lights and the, the revving engine of the police car that races up behind you. Do you know that feeling? I, I, I wouldn't know that feeling, but I, <laughs> I've been told it's a terrible one. It's the feel, your gut, gut clenches, so people say, the, the, the adrenaline starts to fire, there's a fear and anxiety, and you're looking at the cars in front to see if it's them that they're going for. It's a terrible context, but trivial because the consequences are just a fine. And as I get older, I care less. (laughs) But imagine your life, your thoughts, your every lust, your every evil thought, your every selfish thought, your every thought of jealousy and anger at someone else, every time you did something and you wished people and all all of that, and your browser history... Imagine all of that was going to be put up on the screens next week in Churchy. And imagine at morning tea, as you're eating a hot crust bun, someone comes up to you and says, we've got it. It's been sent to us, all that stuff you've done. And it's going to be shown next week. What happens? Your heart drops, the fear and anxiety of the judgment to come. There is that day coming. There is that day coming. The Lord Jesus himself is emphatic, he says, every secret word, every secret thought that you've uttered in silence and quiet will be shouted from the rooftops. There's a day coming where everything will be exposed before the God of the universe 
There is that day coming, a judgment. And the consequences of that judgment are eternal. The world has done such a good job of eradicating all thought of that because we don't want to live with fear. We don't want to live in a world of fear. We don't want to live, we want to live without fear. No one wants fear. But pretending there's no judgment doesn't stop it being so. The earlier part of this message, this Romans letter that you've got an excerpt in the Bible with you, the earlier part actually tells us in chapter 3 that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And it says these terrifying words, verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by their efforts. No one will be justified. No one will will be able to stand before God and get the declaration of, you're justified. You're free to go. No one will get that on the basis of their life's works. And we don't want to hear that. But not wanting to hear it doesn't make it not true. You know, this is one of the least obvious implications of the resurrection, actually. We, we talk about Jesus being raised, uh, and there are many implications that follow quite naturally. This is one of the ones that we're not quite alert to always, because he's the one who taught these things. The Lord Jesus is the one who brought us these truths, that he's the one you should fear, not the one who can kill the body and after that do nothing more, but the one who after killing the body can cast the soul into hell. He says, that's the one you should fear. The Lord Jesus taught on these things more than anyone else. And if he has been raised from the grave, if he is alive again as a living Lord Jesus, raised by his Father God, then he is who he says he is, And all that he taught is true and can be confidently understood and embraced. And he's the one who says, wake up from your slumber. Turn on the lights to see the truth about your circumstance. You are racing towards a judgment. And it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans didn't give us chapter 8 and tell us all of these things in chapter 3 just to leave us in that place. The Lord Jesus didn't come to speak these things to leave us in that place. He came to free us from them. He came to wipe the slate clean. He came to make it possible that for you... There is no case to answer for. Now, how? Well, that's the very thing Easter weekend's all about. And you come back to that passage, if we can throw it up again, you'll see the next little piece. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This Apostle Paul takes us straight back to the cross. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is the God who is, we are told, for us. It's an astonishing message against all the evidence of our life and what we deserve before this God. He is the one who calls us enemies, actually, in Romans chapter 5. Against all the possible evidence, he says he is for us. How can we know he is for us? Because of verse 32, he did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Now, we talked about this on Good Friday, and I know I should just leave it and go to Easter Sunday and talk about the resurrection only, but I find myself unable, I'm sorry to keep going, I want to go back there to the cross all the time. So we're going to go back there. He gave up his life for us in place of ours. 
God's Son took on himself our guilt. We deserve to be condemned and he stood in our place. We were guilty as we went to the courtroom, terrified by the implications of what might be seen when our life is exposed. But the judge of the universe, God, steps off his seat of judgment and gives up himself to take the punishment we deserve so that we could be declared justified. No case to answer for. He wipes our history clean. Now, it's not just that it's gone, it's gone because someone else bore it, paid for it. Do you know, how do you think of this God? How do you think about God? I I know many in our world don't think much of him or think little of him, which is itself a tragedy. Because this is the God who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. We were staring down the barrel of eternity, cut off for our lives, because of our lives, but he graciously gave us such a gift. You see, the point of this passage, Romans chapter 8, which if we keep it up there if you wouldn't mind, but part of this passage, Romans chapter 8, um, is, is, it's based on an assumption. It's based on an assumption that the readers have come to appreciate what God has done in the cross. It's based on an assumption that the people he's writing to have accepted the gift of Jesus' death on their behalf, that they have owned their guilt and realised their only hope is Jesus and they've said, I'm going to come back into relationship with him as my Lord and Saviour. It's based on that assumption. But of course, I want to raise, is it possible this morning you haven't done that? Because all that we're going to talk about, God being for us and the great consequences wonderfully of that, are dependent on whether you've come to this God. And put your trust in him as your saviour. If you have, the cross and resurrection becomes therefore a pledge to us. A pledge that God is for us. He's for us. He gave you his most precious gift while you were sinners. He must be for you. And track this through because we'll get to the resurrection in a moment. But you come, look at verse 33. Um, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Who can bring any charge against those for whom God has paid with the life of his very own son? It is God who declares you right. It is God who has said over you, justified. No case to answer for. Not at a future time, but at right now he can say that over your life. And the point that Paul is making is if God has declared you right, who in the universe can condemn you? Who in the universe can take this gift away? Now again, he's talking to you, Christian. Those of you who have turned back to God and thrown yourself on his mercy, this has been the declaration over your life. And I want you to feel it this morning. This has been the declaration over your life by God himself, justified. 
no case to answer for. Because I've not spared my only son, but given him up in your place to cleanse your slate by my mercy. And so he has said this in the heavenly courtroom, there is no case to answer for. The one who has said it is God. You are accepted by him. He has said so. So this is the consequence of that. That voice you hear in your head, in your heart, that says to you, you're unworthy. That voice that comes to you and says, you can't possibly be accepted by this holy God. Look at what you've done. You don't deserve this. That voice is true. Absolutely true. But God has said, it has all been taken away. What other voice compares to your inner guilt, satanic accusation? No one can condemn now that God has justified. This is written to driven home the implications of the death of Jesus. You are justified. God is for you, unworthy as you are. He drives it home. Look at it. I love it. No, sorry, go back again. It, verse, go back to the. It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. Thank you. It's my confusion to him. No one can condemn. And uh, he plays this out now and he adds one more piece. Now the next slide. Thank you. Look at this. He adds Christ Jesus who died. Now he adds the new piece. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. There's the new thought. He died, yes, but more than that, was raised to life and is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Here's the new thought, a new insight, a new implication of the resurrection, if you like. Because of the resurrection, there is one now standing at the right hand of God, interceding for you, pleading your case. Again, it's the courtroom language. 1 John chapter 2 talks about Jesus being an advocate, a legal advocate, arguing your case before God the Father. You've been caught in a crime, you're before the judge, the human judge, the human courtroom and your great concern is to find an advocate, a, a lawyer, a barrister, someone who is clever, who can argue your case, plead your case. If you're innocent, you want a really clever one to make sure they see the truth but if you're guilty, what do you want? Now, here's the danger because if you're guilty and in court, the danger is you want a barrister who can twist the facts who can manipulate the system. But here's the deal, we are guilty in the heavenly court. We have an advocate who doesn't need to twist the facts. Because the point of his intercession as an advocate is not as a, he's not a shady lawyer who does a dodgy deal, but he comes as an advocate who has actually paid for you. He has taken your punishment on your behalf. He has fulfilled the just requirements of the law. There's nothing shady here. His advocacy, his intercession isn't a new thing in addition to the cross of Christ. It's not as if the cross did part of the work and the advocacy now kind of finishes it up. No, 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 no. The cross finishes the work. The cross is the finished work of God to seek and save. But what does the advocacy do? What does the intercession do? He stands before the Heavenly Father, which is surely imagery, 
but nonetheless making a... He stands before the Heavenly Father, forever applying the finished work. He, he says to the Heavenly Father, who doesn't need him to say it because it's the Father who sent the Son to die for us, but God is giving us this image to actually strengthen our confidence and our assurance. The Son says to the Father, He's paid for, I paid. She's paid for, I paid. Justified, because justice has been done. All possible because the Christ Jesus who died, more than that was raised to life, is now an eternal priest, able to make intercession for you. Because of his death and resurrection by the power of the Father, this one is forever by the Father, pleading your case on the basis of his death for you. You know, I'm... um, Again, a conscious there's so many different people amongst us on any given weekend. There are many of you, of course, who have turned to Jesus, but there are many amongst us who haven't done that, and we're so glad you're with us. We, we just, we, I'm so glad there was a church that would welcome me when I was exploring and wondering and wrestling. And so we're glad that you're amongst us. But I don't want you to, we don't want you to leave imagining that this is for you. This confidence and security and intercessory work. We don't want you to think this is for you. Except that it is. If you would come back. But it's not yours if you haven't turned. Outside of the gift of the Son of Jesus for you, you will be on your own before the heavenly courtroom. And Jesus says, I tell you who you should fear. The resurrection proves his words to be true. The fact of the resurrection makes this certain. That's why Christians and, and Bible churches are so annoying, isn't it? Because they just keep, they keep bugging you and saying, you've got to deal with this, you've got to think about this. Come along to church. Why don't you come to this thing? Why don't you? Because we want so much, we're so convinced that these things are true, that your only hope is to come and throw yourself on the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus uh, it's why we struggle so much with the media presentations of Easter time. Though I've noticed this Easter, it's a little better. But it's why we struggle so much with Easter presentations that just make Easter sound as if it's about a metaphor of lost and found, of hopelessness and hope, whatever your circumstances. Trump's in a context of hopelessness, but like the Lord Jesus was in hopelessness and had hope, he can have hope too. What a What a load of <laughs> that is not what Easter's about Trump and I'm not I, you don't know my politics but I'm just what a ridiculous media thing to make sense of we get because the the Easter experience is not just about the psychology of hopelessness and hope it's about an objective reality of heaven and hell Life and death. But but for you who are captured by the Lord Jesus, you I, I want so, we want so much for you to know this morning that the God who did not spare His only Son but gave Him up for you, 
means he is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? No one. And more than that, he who died and was raised to life again is at the right hand of God and is interceding for you. He is pleading your case constantly as the resurrected eternal one who will never die, who never grows weary, who can forever perfectly argue your case because he paid for you. My death covered that one. Guilty as they are, I've covered them, interceding for you. Do you know, in your fears and doubts, in your struggles, you are tempted to find someone to pray for you who, who is more godly than you, that's closer to God than you. I, I, you, know, you. I get that instinct. I want someone whose prayers really work. And so you go and find the, the, the priest or as if this is... You find someone who you think is anointed in some really special way and you go to them. Um, brothers and sisters, throw off ever thinking you need a human priest. The resurrection shatters religious thinking. The kind that imagines we need special men and women. Who, when you're in trouble, you want God to be for you and I'll find someone who's close to God to pray for me. No. You have this one, the Lord Jesus, the very Son of God pleading for you, interceding for you, applying the cross for you. Now, of course, get people to pray for you. But all they'll be doing is praying to the one who is paid. God himself has provided. He is for you. He did not spare his only son. What security and confidence you can have in the ups and downs of life, in the stresses and strains of your circumstances. And here's where the Apostle Paul ends. He has this extraordinary set of statements where he finishes. Um, Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who has loved us. God, His love for us in the cross, in the resurrection, who not only pays but applies that price paid, is for you. Who then can be against you? Do you know the ministry of the church? Let me tell you, if you want to know what the church is all about here, I'll give it to you. One of the things the church is about, it's about creating and fueling a greater fear amongst people of condemnation and judgment. And it's also about fostering the greatest confidence in the midst of that reality of judgment that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid, paid in full, he intercedes for you. You can now know that you are secure and safe in Him. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. This life is not it. There is a whole age to come. All that Jesus said about life, death, judgment to come is true because of the resurrection. And His death because of the resurrection is forever applied to you who look to Him as a Saviour. You have a great high priest in heaven pleading for you and so you can be more than conquerors in life. You can stand firm, secure, without fear and anxiety that overwhelms because there's nothing you need to fear now. God is for you. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And the impact of that resurrection is that in our life and in our eternal future, we are secure.
through death into eternity with the God who has loved us so much. The resurrection of Christ. Let me pray. Our great God, we, uh, we stand amazed at the work that you have achieved. That you have come into the world in the person of your son and you have paid such a price. And you, Heavenly Father, have raised your son from death, destroying death, securing him as Lord, establishing all he said as true, establishing him as unique amongst all the religions and establishing him as our intercessor, as the one who pleads the cross of Christ on our behalf forever, securing us in all our foolishness and sin, that you have wiped the slate clean. We can be secure in your arms because if you are for us, who can be against us? We thank you for this great gift. Amen.